You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. What would our worship look like if we really worshipped before the living God? What would our worship look like if we really understood the essence of that living God? What would our lives look like? That would be living worship. It's an interesting fact that as I read the Bible, I don't find a single place in the whole Bible from Genesis to Maps where we are commanded to worship. Can you think of anything? Where God says, you really should be a people that worship. I can't think of anything. And I think the reason for that is... You can send me an email later. God knows everybody worships. All of us worship. We don't need to be commanded or even invited to worship. We just are, to be a human being is to be a worshiping creature. And the question isn't whether you'll worship or not. You will. The question is, what or whom will you worship? And of course, With that question, the Bible is absolutely preoccupied all the way through. See, because God in the Bible understands that you and I are constantly finding other things to worship. Places where we find ultimate meaning. The word worship, the English word worship comes from the Middle English word worship which as far as I can tell is the same word that we use just with more saliva. (laughs) But it it meant to them honor. To to honor something. And so worship becomes um, the expression of ultimate honor in your life. Where, what's the, what's the, what's number one in your life? Whatever that is, that's worship. John Calvin said the human heart is an idol making factory. What he meant by that is the human heart is constantly worshiping. It's always looking for places to attach itself, to find something more, security, meaning, hope. So where is the place that the human heart really can truly worship the living God? Where? Where can we engage this God who is disclosed to us by the book of Deuteronomy as a living God who speaks out of the fire, speaks his name to Moses, the burning bush, and then again on Mount Sinai where God graciously hides Moses in a cleft of a rock and passes by him and says his name, his sentence name, I am the Lord, gracious, faithful, slow to anger. Where's that place of worship for us? That place of living worship? Well, our, our text today points the direction, and I want to invite you to um, read it with me. Would you open up your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 12, um, which you'll find on page 149 of the Pew Bible. And let's begin with the end of the chapter. So if you're able to stand together, we'll read God's word aloud. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 29 through the end there at 32. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. 
So if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. When the Lord your God has cut off before you the nations whom you are about to enter to dispossess them, when you have dispossessed them and live in their land, take care that you are not snared into imitating them after they have been destroyed before you. Do not inquire concerning their gods, saying, How did these nations worship their gods? I also want to do the same. You must not do the same for the Lord your God, because every abhorrent thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. They would even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. You must diligently observe everything that I command you. Do not add to it or take anything from it. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. Lord Jesus, risen one, living God, speak to us now of your nature that we might be swept into worship now in this place and forevermore. Amen. So the uh, worship service begins and the minister steps up to the lectern and uh, taps on the microphone and says, there's something wrong with this microphone, to which the congregation replies, and also with you. <laughs> and I kind of like that. I've shared that joke with you before. But there's something true about it to me. There's something true about the fact that worship that's just kind of rote, where you just kind of do what you did last Sunday, it seems kind of beside the point and meaningless. But there's also something of a deeper truth in the fact that a worship in which people didn't really acknowledge that there was something wrong with them wouldn't really be true worship either, would it? I mean, there seems to be something right about the fact that someone gets up and, as the congregation assumed, says, there's something wrong with you all. And they kind of nod joyfully and say, and also with you. And he nods and... And so the worship carries on as that were, as though that were the most natural thing to say in the midst of a worship service. I wonder if it feels natural to us to bring our brokenness into worship. This summer, I told some of you I went away to Colorado for three days with a guy who, 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 who he considers himself part spiritual director, part life coach, uh, part wilderness guide. And he does these individual retreats. You go out into the wilderness, you get exhausted and you have these conversations. And um, I wanted to talk to him about a struggle of mine, actually several struggles, but I'll just tell you, honestly, one of my big struggles is um, writing sermons. Not delivering sermons, but writing sermons for some reason. And I thank those of you who pr pray for me. I know many of you do. By the way, bad preaching is God's judgment on a prayerless con congregation. You know that. So you want to you be praying for your pastor as he's writing sermons. But I, for something, to me, it's not that hard to write a sermon. Um, but for me, it is. I, and I don't know, you know, I, I can only assume that what, what's happening is I'm coming face to face with my brokenness in that process. It's really uncomfortable. And I pray that God would change it. So far, he hasn't answered that prayer. And so I'm talking about this with this guy and uh, huffing up a mountain. And he says, so George, let me ask you a question. Why do you come to church? And I knew the right answer wasn't going to be because they pay me to. <laughs> no, something better. Dig a little deeper, would you? Why do I come to church? 
He said, here's what I ask you. George, most churches, there's someone who gets up in front at the beginning of the service and says, Hi, my name is George. I am slick, fine, and beautiful. And if you knew Jesus the way I knew Jesus, then you'd be slick, fine, and beautiful too. And he says, that is absolutely a disservice to the gospel. He says, when you're writing sermons, what you're doing, George, is you're preparing for worship. And I want to know why you go to church. I thought, it's because I need God's grace? Bingo. What would it mean for you to prepare for worship in that way? I began to think about it. I began to think, what would it mean for me to come to church and say, Hi, my name is George. I am a sinner in need of grace. And my desperate need and expectation is that as I come and gather with you, that we together will help one another discover the grace of God in the living Savior, Jesus Christ. And it feels right to me. It feels like that's why I ought to be coming to church. And truthfully, it is. Why do you come to church? Why are you here this morning? What is your expectation for your worship experience as we gather? If you're not coming for that reason, be very careful. Because I have learned that I can follow the instructions in the bulletin, be standing at the right time, sitting at the right time, say the right words, sing all the songs, and not be worshiping. Not be worshiping the living God, some figment of my imagination, maybe my own reputation, my own pride, maybe, but not the living God. It's a myth about myself, but not the living God. And if I have trouble worshiping the living God in the context of this room, in this hour, imagine how hard it must be for, for me to do it when I'm not really paying particular attention to it during the week. See, all of this suggests that we have misplaced our worship. And, and it is with the placement of our worship that Moses is greatly concerned as he offers this second of the three great sermons on the plains of Moab that we know today as the book of Deuteronomy. He, he, he's saying location matters. So I, I, I want you to see a little bit of that and what it's inviting us to consider as we think about our worship experience. So hopefully you've kept your Bible open or you'd open back up to Deuteronomy 12. And I'm going to read so you, you don't have to read. But listen to this. This is the beginning now of a section uh, within Moses' second sermon that's uh, an expansion on the, the laws and the commandments that Moses has already articulated in the Ten Commandments at the beginning of chapter 5. He's, remember, reviewed the Ten Commandments, and now he begins, some say, to sort of follow the general outline of the Ten Commandments, and he begins with worship, because that's the beginning. He begins with worship. Remember, the first of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt have no other gods besides me. Be clear about who is the object of your worship. So Moses says, the place matters. And listen as I read these seven verses. He began, These are the statutes and ordinances that you must diligently observe in the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you to occupy all the days that you live on the earth. That's his, his intro to the whole 26, uh, next chapters up to 26. And then, now worship, he says, You must demolish completely all the places where the nations whom you're about to dispossess served their gods. Demolish the places. Uh, on the mountain heights, on the hills, and under every leafy tree, 
Break down their altars, smash their pillars, burn their sacred poles with fire, and hew down the idols of their gods, and thus blot out their name from their places. You shall not worship the Lord your God in such ways, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes as his habitation to put his name there. Let me just pause for a second before I read on. I realize we read this text and we start to get a little uncomfortable with it. It feels like religious intolerance or is this ethnic cleansing, we wonder. And I'm going to address some of those questions when we come to living conflict a little bit later on. But all I want you to see right now, all that Moses seems to want us to see, is just imagine that the occupants of this land have left but recognize they're all worshipers and so they leave behind their cultic sites. And the question... It's going to occur. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to say to yourself, hmm, sacred sites. What a fine place to worship our God. Let's just move right in. The architecture's already there and, and, uh, we'll worship the living God in this place. And God says, don't you, don't you do that. You need to wait until I reveal to you, appoint for you another place. The place where I will put my name, he says in verse five. So let me continue on. And he says, Here's what, hap- here's what happens there. You shall go there, bringing there your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes and donations, your votive gifts, your free will offerings, and the firstlings of your herds and flocks. And you shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your households together, rejoicing in all the undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Now, notice the emphasis on place. Not those places, but the one place. We see it again in verse 13. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place you happen to see, but only at the place that the Lord God will choose. It's location. There's a place where the name of the living God invites us to worship. Why? Isn't God everywhere? Isn't he omnipresent? Big word. Um, yeah, if you're reading the Bible, you realize God's the one who made heaven and earth, right? Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Uh, he is uh, available to the Israelites, even when they're abroad in Egypt. He's wherever they go, manifesting himself in the pillar of fire and smoke, leading them. He's everywhere. He, you can worship God anywhere. That's not the question, but at this point in time, the emphasis is on the place. Why? Well, two reasons. First of all, it must have something to do with the name. Uh, because name is being repeated again and again. Verse 3, blot out the name of those false gods from their places. And then, uh, by the way, the name, the name to uh, um, a Hebrew at this time is not just the label you use to call someone. Hey, Frank, Susie. It's a depiction of the essence of a being. It's a a representation of their truest self. So uh, be sure that you go to the right place because places get associated with names, the essence. If you want to worship the living God, then you need to be where, where I have chosen to disclose my name to you, my being. Right, so name, that's important. And the second reason why location is that the place speaks the name. And really God is saying, I want you to seek the place that speaks my name. 
And you might ask, how is it that these locations would speak the name of their God? In what sense? Well, if you're an architect, you know very well that a physical site does actually engage you in particular ways, particular kinds of activities. And, and, and uh, an innocent Israelite might say, hey, that's a sacred place. I'm going to go up to that high place, and it's been used by worshipers forever. Now they've been worshiping false gods, but I'm here to worship the true God. And uh, God says, don't you do that. Because there's something about the physical sight there that misrepresents my name. What could be wrong? Well, let's just think about the high places. What is communicated in a high place about the essence of God? I mean, if you think that you have to, to climb to worship your God, if this is going to be a, a hand-over-fist struggle to, to make it to the highest place you could possibly... Does it not suggest the inaccessibility of the deity? He's way up there, way up there. And if you want a word with him, you've got to work. You've got to hammer it out. You've got to get yourself there. Because he's not going to lift a finger except to uh, stir his iced tea. Um, get as close to the heavens as you can. What about some of these other sites? Well, these are places where things happen. For example, we read in Deuteronomy 14, lacerations. These gods were making demands of their supplicants that ended up being self-destructive. Do you remember when uh, uh, Elijah's up on the Mount Carmel, uh, this contest against the prophets of Baal, bring down the fire on the altar, and they're cutting themselves, they're, they're abusing themselves because they think that the gods, Baal, don't really pay much attention unless you do something really dramatic and impressive. They're kind of indifferent and even slightly hostile or malicious. <laughs> Moses says in chapter 14, you don't need to do that. Don't do that. So many of these regulations are things that they're just not supposed to do because there's somebody else who says you need to do that. You need to cut yourself if you want to get God's attention. You need to climb a mountain if you want God's attention. You, you, you need to do these things. That's how we've learned to live here in Canaan. Even the part that you read says these places, big fire pit, will lead you to think that maybe you need to sacrifice your children because in its extreme, that's where Canaanite worship had gone. The sacrificing of daughters and sons to Moloch, immolation of children. You, you, can't, you can't know anything about me in a place like that. If you try to worship even me in a place like that, what you're going to learn is that God is a God of terror. You're going to be controlled by your worst nightmare. And that doesn't tell you anything about me. So God says, you know, deconstruct all of those cultic sites. Remove them from your sense of what worship is all about. And wait upon the place that speaks my name. And we get a little picture of what this looks like. So let's just, just uh, look here at uh, verse uh, 6, this, this habitation of verse 5, where God puts his name. Now, that's, that's a, um, a reference to the place where God chooses to dwell, which is the tabernacle. Do you remember before the temple in the wilderness, Israel is given a tent where the Ark of the Covenant goes, and it sim symbolizes the presence of God in the midst of his people. And it's going to move. That's why Jerusalem isn't mentioned, because before Jerusalem, there are other places like Shiloh, and in those places, God will appoint worship. And here's what you're to do uh, in those places. All of Israel is to gather to this one place. And gather to do what? Well, I want you to uh, bring 
these offerings, and he describes a variety of offerings. And if you notice, they're all food. Uh, So in essence, what you're doing is you're bringing the first fruits of your crops, your produce. It'll be oil, it'll be wine, it'll be wheat, it'll be uh, from your flock. Bring the bounty. Bring of your livelihood. Tokens. And, uh, you know, for you, it's maybe it's just a few cattle or sheep or whatever you bring that. But your neighbor's going to bring a bunch of wheat and... And their neighbor is going to bring some oil. And as you gather together, what you had in and of itself wasn't much. But when you add it together, you have a huge celebration. And that's the hallmark of worship of the living God. It's rejoicing, we read in verse 7. Then you and your household, you're going to be rejoicing in the things in which the Lord your God has blessed you. He's blessed you. And you bring the tokens of that blessing together in worship. It's a collective experience. Now, notice what we're bringing is not just the beauty of our lives. Because I don't think you can really get at the essence of God. I don't think you'd really see his name in just the beauty of our lives, where things go well. There are offerings here for sin. So, in a sense, God is saying, you bring me your failures, too. You bring me your brokenness, too. Because in your brokenness, there's a wonderful depiction of my grace. And you get to see my name there. Bring your votive offerings, which are vows to to live a different kind of life, to turn and live as though God's commandment were really life-giving. Bring those. And bring the things that have made your heart heavy. Um, Those who are defiled by contact with the dead, they need to come with offerings that will show them even in the midst of death there's life. Bring those. Uh, those of you who are sick, um, there's offerings for that as well to purify you so that you know that your illness does not get the last word on your life. Bring all of these things. So can you imagine a people that are gathering everything for which they're thankful and joyful, everything which, by which they are vexed and perplexed and broken, assembled together in one place, offered in the presence of the Lord as they eat a feast. And God's saying, yes, all of this has a place in my love, in my grace, all of this. Closest thing I, I think about as I thought about this week would be like a flash mob. Don't you love flash mobs? You watch them on YouTube. You know, we did, a couple years ago someone did, I guess uh, Gerhard Schwartz is at the symphony, did this thing at Nordstrom's. Flash mob, if you don't know, is a group of people who plan to do some performance art in a very uh, public place where it's otherwise quite mundane, you know, like a, a Grand Central Station where during rush hour and commuters are all heads down and they're not thinking about anything beautiful. They're just trying to, they're preoccupied with the stress of their lives, got to get from point A to point B, or the shopping mall where it's just going through the list and I got to spend all this money, I'm going into debt. And But in the middle of these places, a flash mob of these artists, you know, they're regular people actually, they got this plan to sort of hijack the the emotional um, tenor of the moment. And so at Nordstrom's, they started singing um, the, the, the organ play, and they started singing the Handel's Messiah. And people are dancing and bringing out instruments. And, you know, if you're just shopping there, you're going, what in the world is this? Even the people that participate did not rehearse it, and they can't imagine it. It's a surprise to everybody. They knew what their part would be, but they hadn't seen it until they gathered. And I really think that's what worship is. You might know what you're bringing to worship, but you don't know the impact of what everybody is bringing until you gather for worship. The corporate worship is shaping a collective imagination for Israel that's that's speaking to who God is in his essence. 
God of grace. And then we gather corporately to, to be able to see the beauty of that representation, the narrative of God's grace in the world. And we go, wow, yeah, that's it. That's it. And I can live with that. I can live for that. I can live before that living God. And we go out into the world aflame with that imagination. And we do whatever mundane stuff we do. But we know it's no longer mundane because it's a part of this bigger story. And we'll get to come back again and celebrate. But where is the place for us that speaks God's name? Where? We don't gather at a temple anymore. We don't, we don't barbecue our way through our worship services. It's kind of too bad. Um, and we've been cast into a land of idols. When you go through those doors today, you go back out into a world that's going to say, George, here are the cultic places. Here's where you worship. Here's how we've learned to find our security. Our relationships, wealth, money, you know the list. Health. And, and, and you're meant to say, no, I know another place. What is that place? Well, it's a question that a woman asked of Jesus in the first century. She had come to a place that was a lonely place. In the heat of the day it was a well. She was gathering water. She was thirsty. She had a physical thirst, but as uh, the conversation progressed with Jesus, he pointed out she had a deeper need. She had a spiritual thirst. It was that place within her heart that needed to know what is worthy of her honor? What is supreme? And she senses that he's getting at that question and that this conversation is really about worship. And she says, so I, I, I perceive that you're a prophet. Because he's just told her, you know, I, I really know what thirst looks like in your life. I really know what worship looks like in your life. It's this self-destructive pattern that you're of, of looking for security in relationships with men, and you've had five men. Maybe husbands, maybe just men. And she says, wow, you seem to know a lot about me. And what about you? Who are you? You must be some kind of a prophet. And if you are, you could answer the question that we've been asking for generations, and that is, where's the place? Where's the place of worship? By the way, the Samaritans, they read the, the Pentateuch. They just have the first five books of the Old Testament, the Samaritan Pentateuch. So I don't know if she's a scholar or not, but she's apparently aware in this debate that there's a place somewhere that really matters where God's name is being set. And she goes, we want to know what you think about this because my people tell me it's here on this mountain, which is Gerizim. But in your people, the Jews uh, t tell us that it's on that mountain, Jerusalem. And Jesus says, I, I tell you, it's not in that place, and it's not in that place. It's in spirit and truth that you'll worship. And you are looking at the place where God has set his name. You are looking into the face of God. It's Jesus. Jesus is the place where God makes manifest his grace most perfectly. And she's amazed. I found it. I found the one. The one place. Where in the midst of all my struggles, I can satisfy my deepest thirst. Where I can truly worship and truly be who I am. Where, where I serve a God who serves me in humility. And she runs to her village because it's going to be a corporate event for her. She just needs to tell people, come and see, come and see. I met a man who, who told me everything about myself. Which is a slight exaggeration, it seems to me, because he's just told her about her love life. 
But when, you, when, when someone identifies the depth of your being, as he did when he spoke about worship, it's like he knows everything about it, everything there is to know about her. And they all run out, and they come and see, they say, we have found the one, the place. Living worship is serving the God who has come to serve us. We need to seek the place that God reveals his name. It speaks his name in Jesus. One of the earliest artifacts of Christian art is um, a plaster uh, sketch on a wall from Italy, and it's called the Aleximanos uh, Graffito. It's a, it's, a, it's a graffiti. And it shows the cross, and a man on the cross, except his head, is a donkey's head. And there's a, another man on the ground is looking at the figure on the cross, and the inscription says, Aleximanos worships his God. Ha, ha, ha. He worships a God. It's not like all of our gods are powerful and great. We need to work for them. You need to pay the price of admission. You climb the mountain. You earn your way to this God, and he finally recognizes your achievement and says, Slave, what can I do for you? Here's a God who takes the form of a slave, who makes his being known on a cross. And it, we assume that some slave named Aleximanos finds a quiet moment during his workday to worship this God, to find that place of worship in Jesus Christ. And another slave who's caught him doing it several times has decided to deface the sight with this ridicule and scorn. But it's a place of worship. This week, when you find yourself in places that lack peace, hope, Security, assurance, love. When your heart is overshadowed by anxiety, fear, sadness, uncertainty, there is one place that speaks God's name in the midst of that. And it is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is God who is inviting you to seek Him because He's seeking you. We're we'll close with the words of Edward Shalito, who writes a poem called Jesus of the Scars. Edward Shalito writes this poem in the rubble and dust of World War I, very much disillusioned with the great ambitions of the human race. And he writes, If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. The heavens frighten us. They're too calm. In all the universe, we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars... We claim thy grace. If when doors are shut, thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine. We know today what wounds are. Have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds. 
but thou alone. Let's pray. Dear God, your wounds in Jesus Christ do speak. You are our great high priest. You worship on our behalf in spirit and truth and then invite us to participate in your worship. And you've not done so from the comforts of heaven, but you have come to be like us. A slave dying on a cross and buried. You even descend into hell to meet us where we live our lives and to release us from the curse to fill our hearts with joy, knowing that we are loved by a God who is so gracious. You're not a stranger to our struggles. You're not a stranger to weakness. You're like us in all respects except sin. And it is precisely because of that that we can see who you are and who we are. Help us to fix our hope on that place. Help us to run rejoicing to one another and beyond the walls of this building and the confines of this hour out into our friends and family and neighbors and say, come and see, come and see. And we pray with confidence because we know you have sent your spirit to enable us to do just that. So meet us there today in Christ's name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, Visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.